So episode three is really important to me because my guest is my very own brother. Now it's really weird to be doing a podcast with your brother in a professional environment because I remember seeing him in his diapers. I held him when he was a little baby and we fought, we uh, wrestled, we played. And it's really interesting to be able to then now talk to him. You know, this is a pretty huge guest for anyone else. Uh, for me, I was talking to him like a brother. We were reminiscing about the past and our history together, but also just remembering, man, this guy is leading design at Webflow. Really awesome. So check out the episode. Let me know what you think and let's get to it. Hey, welcome to the 1980 podcast. In this podcast, I am now meeting and talking with my very own brother. He and I are actually Xennials, people that were born in 1977, between 97 and 83, 77 and 83. And uh, hey, David, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. It's really excited, kind of weird that I am uh, inviting my brother, but you and I had a very different childhood. We kind of grew up in different paths, but uh, we're actually kind of very similar at this point in our life in, in what we're doing. So let's go a little bit nostalgia. Tell me a little bit about your childhood growing up, and let's uh, talk about nostalgia, because I, in one of my previous episodes, we talked about a world before the internet, and I think, do you remember what life was like before the internet? I definitely remember what it was like before the internet. I think, before I start, I think one thing that really surprised me was, for a while, I thought I was a millennial, so I didn't realize I was in this zennial bucket, because, you know, I was... 83, as you know, mm -hmm. very last day of the year, New Year's Eve. Mm -hmm. I you, think one thing that really... Oh, go ahead. You're probably the oldest millennial, if you were to classify the ways. I'm the first the millennial. You're the first millennial. <laughs> and, and, and it's questionable, right? So even this Xennial thing mm -hmm. is whole, a whole bunch of BS. It's kind of made mm -hmm. up, kind of cost generations. But the reality is like it's it's mindset, right? It's, it's Is it... A, mm -hmm. Are you an old school mindset or are you a very forward-facing mindset? And I think what's unique with Xennials and potentially you, where I see it, is, is you're both. Because the stuff I see you, you sketch a lot on paper, you do a lot of analog things as opposed mm -hmm. to 100% digital. And that, I think that's where it's unique. And that's why I asked you, like, if you remember the world before the internet. Yeah. And I, I think that's what's interesting about, like, the people born in my year, right, that's kind of unique because it's kind of in that convergent point of, you know, old school and new school. And I think, remember growing up, you know, my childhood is like, I hung out with you, right? I hung out with your friends, like people who are older than me. So a lot of my upbringing was, it was biased towards older people yeah. and kind of that older mental model. And I think that's what I kind of bring into that millennial generation, right? Is that because I'm this like prototype millennial, I, I carry a lot of these attributes from the, like the old era before. So to, to kind of touch on what you asked is like, yeah, definitely remember, you know, pre-web growing up, everything was analog. We spent most of our time outside. Yeah. <laughs> and, and and I remember we, we were we were not rich and we were not completely in poverty, but we were on the lower end, I think. But we were cutting edge when it came to computers because I think uh, we had an uncle that was really into computers. He was computer science and mm -hmm. our dad was really into forward facing and, and got us, you know, really expensive. I remember getting the gateway computer. It had the little cow box. And that mm -hmm. computer was, we priced it out. We scoped it out. It was like $3,500. And this is in the 80s. 
And so that's probably the equivalent of getting like a $10,000 computer today. So super, super expensive. It had, I don't know, maybe like two megabytes of RAM or something ridiculously small. Had floppy drives, super slow. 100, 100, 100, me- 100 megabytes of memory, right? Which something is like, like that, yeah. Yeah, which is one jazz drive, if you remember what <laughs> jazz drives are. <laughs> so, so special gift between David and myself, if anyone can respond to this and let us know that you know what a jazz drive is, we're going to find a gift and get it to you. <laughs> and it, I remember going to the internet service provider. So back then they call them ISPs, mm-hmm. internet service mm-hmm. providers, uh, Teleport. Do you remember Teleport? Tele- I remember Teleport, yeah. I actually still remember um, our password and, and and I won't I'm share it over the, yeah, the yeah. air, but I, I still use that password on some accounts, password on some accounts, uh, because I, I just has a lot of nostalgia to for me. Now, I, I remember very clearly seeing email for the first time, and I can't remember if you were there with me when dad took us there. I don't remember it, but I have a elementary school story to tell you that okay. I don't know if I ever told you. But yeah, oh, no. I'll hold that thought. Well, so hold that thought. And, and then, so with email, I remember dad, you were probably there, you were probably too young, but... Um, I remember being there and just barely grasping what the idea was all about. And this guy was giving a demonstration and he sent an email to someone in Berkeley. And first of all, like, we're just like, what is this email? It's just like, this is for the first time. We had no idea what this is all about. He sent the message. And then a few minutes later, a message came back. And that was my oh shit moment. It, I think there hasn't been such a revolutionary jump in such a long time that you went, we went from nothing, right? We went from just physical mail facts at best to a, a digital world that was kind of the first step into a digital world where we sent a message and it came back pretty instantaneously. And I think that mm. was incredible. So I want to hear about your elementary story. Yeah. So my, mine isn't as exciting as your, your oh shit moment. Cause I think for me that came later and I'll, I'll tell you what it was and I think you'll remember it. So in, I think I was in second grade, we had show and tell for those who don't remember show and tell it's when like you can go up and present something that, you know, that you really like the, the best show and tell pro- ones are when someone brought their pet in, you know, and I, I think we've brought our rabbit in at, at one point, mm-hmm. like in school. I don't know if you did or I did, but I remember one of my classmates, he brought a printed piece of paper and it was an email he got back from president Bill Clinton. Oh my gosh. And I was so confused because I was just like, what do you mean you got mail over the computer? And that was kind of my recollection of email. But the thing I wanted to kind of talk about was that the aha moment for me, mm-hmm. it probably came later. And you probably remember this is you remember ICQ. Yes. Right? That was the aha moment for me, where it was like you could communicate with people directly. And like, I remember going way back. Yeah, I won't go into details, but I was playing Quake, you know, the first person <laughs> shooter. There yep. was the Team Fortress mod. Yep. And I, it was GameSpy. We were using that to chat and he sent me his ICQ ID and then I downloaded it. Uh And it was someone I was friends with and ended up like becoming friends for a long time because like this whole notion of a friend you met from the internet was completely bizarre. So you didn't know him. I didn't know. It's just he was the medic from Team Fortress. That's how I knew him. And how how was the chat? How did the chat work? In GameSpy? It yeah. was just like in, in console chat. But then like I think there was a private chat or maybe it was public. He's Got like, it. here's my ICQ. So I downloaded it. 
then all of our friends from school had ICQ. And so for my listeners, ICQ or ICQ or and the acronym is ICQ um, is was one of the first chat applications out there, and people had kind of an ID, and that was your way to kind of connect with other people. If you had this ID, then they can connect with you and. And it was the first form of instant messenger in the sense that you can just send, you can chat back and forth via text. Do you uh, remember the sound? Bloop. It was, it's like the, oh, oh, yes, yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and so I guess the whole reason we're being nostalgic about this in general is because I think back then nothing works, right? Like just today, like I think my, or my, my, we were talking, playing around with uh, your nephew and my son, you know, for him, like everything is voice driven. He talks to Google he pokes um, on a screen. Back then, like you really had to troubleshoot things. You had to kind of tinker around and hack everything to make it work. And so one of the mindsets that you and I grew up in was just troubleshooting, hacking things, remixing things, making something work when it just, there was no way for it to work. It didn't exist yet. And so we were always creating and you, you had to. Whereas today, I think there's a proliferation of content. So Oliver's grown up in a world where there's millions of apps and websites and just stuff's already been created. There's just so much already. Um, but back then, I think the reason you got an email back from, or your classmate got an email back from Bill Clinton is he probably only received like 50 emails, right? Like not in the millions right. of emails. And so he actually was able to respond, which is ridiculous. The other the other thing too, I would say is like, I think for our generation, technology and the internet, it was like, it felt like a limited commodity, right? Whereas now there's so much infinite, like, it almost feels like infinite storage, right? Like my iCloud is one terabyte. Yep. Which is, I don't, I can't do the math on how many jazz drives that is, but that's like unheard of, right? So I think for us, like you said, like dialing into our internet service provider, I think our first modem was a 14.4 modem. And things just felt like there was a limit limit of what you can use that, right? So it was almost like a source of field that ran out pretty quick. So I think what happened with us and, you know, maybe it's biased kind of looking back like, you know, like 20 years ago, but I think it was like you made the most of the time you had with that bandwidth as opposed to it being seen as something that's infinite now. So, so I I have to Google this because I think technically like the first modem we got was a 2400 baud modem. Uh, 14.4. I'm trying to look up what this actually is. I think that's probably 14 kilobytes per second or even Mm -hmm. less or something. And so we're talking about kilobytes. Today, we measure everything in gigabytes and terabytes. And so this is an incredibly small amount of data. Um, I remember you and I downloading Doom, and it would take um, Mm. days, right? Like we had to leave the phone line hooked up for days in order to get it to download. You're right. I mean, there was so much limitation back then. And as we transition this conversation into what the future looks like, the future is different because the limitations of the past where you and I grew up, those limitations don't exist today, right? Like at home in Seattle today, I have gigabit internet. So basically the speed is more than I could ever use. Storage, you know, I have this little flash drive sitting on my desk right now is a terabyte and it's the size of a credit card. And, and you know, just those constraints just don't exist in this future world. So David, like for, for our listeners, what, what's your uh, professional uh, background? What do you do? Before I jump into that, I had to do the math. So it's terabytes, 10,000 jazz drives. <laughs> yes. <laughs> or zip disk. I can't remember. Zip, zip um, disk. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I just had. To oh, you that. did it. So, awesome. Yeah. What I do right now, I get to lead designers. I'm working at a company called Webflow. I've been there for about 10 months. 
And, you know, prior to that, I was at a health tech startup called One Medical. A lot of my career has been through serendipitous moments, but I think, you know, the thing that has always been consistent in everything I do is like taking creative and applying it into a way that impacts a business. So I think that's something that I didn't know resonated, but it was like really important is just like, how do you, how do you make a business impact and do it in a creative way? And so you, you were, uh, I think you were an art major in college. And so you kind of, you took a more, much more creative path than I did. And I went yeah. straight down the very boring business route. You know, I did public mm-hmm. policy and I went to business consulting for the majority of my career. And it wasn't until many years into my career that I discovered creative. And so I, now I, I say I'm more business first and then creative second. And I think you mm-hmm. kind of took this creative route and then you kind of gained a lot of business acumen over the years, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's interesting you mentioned that because I feel like, I don't know if it was mom and dad just wanting to keep us out of trouble, but remember we would go to Taekwondo to then art class mm-hmm. and just kind of stayed busy. And I think, you know, we both had upbringings that were around creative. And I think, you know, we kind of basically took the, you know, like the opposite end of the spectrum in our careers. So for me, I didn't know what I wanted to do after graduating high school. I just took a lot of art classes and knew I wanted to do that. So that's why I studied art. And it wasn't until I graduated that I realized that, oh, there's actually like this practical side to art in in design and kind of stumbled upon that. And then over the years and years of experience, then explored like business and focused in that world. So yeah, it was kind of taking a skill I had in creative and then like almost finding a need for it in, in the business. So, so the whole premise of 1980 is around just this both and model, right? So like 1980 Zennials, you and I analog digital, right? It's the combination of both. So creative and business. And mm-hmm. I, I think you can't, there's, there's people, of course, there's people that specialize in one thing. I'm very good at this one creative space and that's my one thing. In my, my opinion, I think it's the, where those intersections lie is where innovation happens, where change truly moves. Intersection of business and creative, intersection mm-hmm. of technology and creative. You know, like you pick two things and you find that intersection point. And ideally, the more intersections you find is where you start finding innovations and you really start moving the needle in how the world changes. And and I, I think I really take a business creative and then now I'm adding technology because I just I I guess I've always had a passion for technology and I think at the intersection of all these things is just where some really cool stuff is happening and so let's talk about some innovation because I mean you're doing some cool stuff I'm doing some cool stuff I'd like to hear kind of what you're working on yeah I think there's a lot of things I'm doing the thing that comes to mind is you know for those who aren't familiar with Webflow it's a product that really empowers people who don't know how to code like as in the traditional sense as writing front end code and being able to ship things to have it in a more visual way. So I think there's a lot of innovation that we've really tried to explore in terms of, you know, how do you bring more access to a certain capability that people ordinarily would not have access to, right? So people who didn't get the privilege to go to school, like study CS, how do you equip them with the same stuff that, you know, those people have? And 
I think that's probably the biggest innovation that I get to work on. So interestingly enough, I think, you know, for us, I really believe that like our customers are the greatest innovators. So like a lot of what I do is really just, you know, from a product perspective, build out these capabilities for people who are the biggest innovators and really kind of dream big and, and have these ideas and just see what they do with them. I think, you know, and I think a lot of that is uh, community building. So I think with innovation, you need community to go with it too. I love it because in both of my 1980 sites, uh, since you joined, I also ported them over to Webflow. They were previously built in WordPress. But before that, I think you and I grew up in a world where we actually wrote HTML and Notepad. You opened up Notepad and mm-hmm. kind of coded it during your, your HTML. And they call it coding, but it's really just a bunch of tags back then. Uh, it's gotten much more complex with CSS and other or other JavaScript and other front-end uh, coding. But for fundamentally, it's HTML. It's a markup language. And I think you and I grew up using Dreamweaver, Macromedia oh, yeah. Dreamweaver, not Adobe Dreamweaver, or it might be an Adobe product. Um, not sure if it's still around. But Webflow reminds me of that. It's it's just like you can move things around without ever writing code. Underlying all of it is a is a bunch of code, right? You guys are just generating or exporting that code in the mm. back end. But in the front end, the user never actually has to interact with it. And, and so I, I find it an incredibly powerful tool. I'm able to mock up and prototype and produce something really quick. But behind the scenes, it's really, really clean, functioning, fast functioning code. And someone actually told me my site was like, how did you get your site to be so fast? And, and I guess just out of curiosity, do you have any kind of back end knowledge on why everything is rendering so fast with Webflow versus another platform? I can't speak for other platforms, but I can think, like what I see with Webflow, like getting to work with it every day is that like the people who created Webflow, you know, the co-founders and now then the early team, I think what they really cared about was clean code. You know, Vlad, our CEO is a, well, he's a designer too, but I think by trait, he's an engineer. So he really cared a lot about code standards and really thinking about how to create things the right way. And I think that's what a lot of people are getting a lot of value from Webflow is, you know, with other tools, it's kind of, it's not really clean code and it's stuff that may not be scalable. But I think, you know, as we kind of think about how code's created, because, you know, what we want to do is give people the best production code possible without them having to create it themselves is to make sure that we're, you know, abiding by modern standards. So that's probably why it feels so high performant and slick, you know, mm-hmm. like compared to, to other platforms, it's actually like, you know, it's creating a lot of junk. And for us, it's really like, you know, how, how do we keep it simple? So I think that's, that's the thing that really stands out. So, so if I were to port this back into the days when I was working at Dreamweaver, a lot of us, or, or Microsoft Word, I remember Word at the time had some sort of plugin where you could just basically type a Word document together and it, and it takes the formatting exports in HTML but the, the problem was it exported such crappy junk that came with Microsoft Word. And so your mm-hmm. site was just completely crap. And I, I would, you know, what I appreciate with Webflow so far is it seems like, and I poked around a little bit in the back end, is the code comes out incredibly clean. And it, it's something that we don't always see. Like the majority, especially if you're doing no code, you're visual designing, you never actually poke into the back end. But it is from a technology perspective, when you are working with clean code, you're able to produce a site that loads a lot faster. It's slicker. You can maintain it. There's, you know, there's just so many reasons why you want to kind of go to this high end route, um, as opposed to just doing kind of junky tools that are, that are out there. And there's plenty of them out there. 
Um, but I definitely appreciate that side of it. So David, you, you do, you're a UX uh, designer, uh, you teach UX classes. What's your process? I mean, for, for our listeners here, I think, um, and, and for context, I'm going to be interviewing uh, Mike Rohde, who did the sketch note. I'm interviewing Sonny Brown, who's doing uh, doodling. Um, I want to understand your process. And part of this season two that I'm doing with this podcast is understanding, you know, how do we start equipping ourselves with the tools to create change and get to this future world and um, help me yeah, clarify what your, what your process looks like. Yeah, I, I try to keep process as lean as possible, just as much as you need, and you can kind of tweak as you go along. So I'm not very, I'm not very dogmatic about process. I think it's important to have, and it's you got to figure out what works. So my process is really simple. I, I like to use the analogy of a magic move in Keynote. So for the audience who doesn't know what a magic move is, is basically you set the start point and the end point. And what Keynote does is create kind of the animation to kind of fill it in, in between. And I think that's really how you should look at a process or a strategy. Really look at the current state of things, like where you're at, what are some of the problems and gaps, and then where do you want to be? And it's, it's as simple as just kind of going from point A to point B, and you're going to have to iterate on the way. But I think too, like there's, a sense of analysis paralysis too, because I can't remember who said it, but I think it, it kind of goes like the, the purpose of the strategy is to enable you to act. And that's really all it is. Right. And I mm-hmm. think you're going to continue and refine and refine. And I think sometimes we try to get strategy just perfect when at the, as the moment you make a move or make an iteration, you're going to have to revisit it. So that's kind of how I approach process, no matter, you know, whether it's strategic planning for the quarter or just kind of planning out my day, just really looking at where am I now? Where do I want to be? And then what are the steps that it takes in between that? I know that sounds ridiculously simple, but that's kind of the intention of it. That's the the basic formula for everything. And so let's talk mm-hmm. about the point B. And ironically, I did work for a company called point B. <laughs> um, but so on the point B side of it, do you, how do you, how much time do you spend envisioning what this future looks like? Like how, how much fidelity is there in that, that kind of finding out what that final thing should be versus how much of it's just exploration to get to that point? I think you need enough to be able to point you directionally in where you need to go. Right. And I think that the reason the future state's important is if you don't have that North star, as people like to call it, you then like could encounter thrash and not know where you're going. Right. So that's the thing is you have to be very intentional about where you go. But the thing is, like in every frequent basis, in every iteration, you should really think about how do you adjust that? And that's the way that keeps a strategy or any sort of process dynamic. If you don't do that and you just simply commit to kind of that point A to point Z without any adjustments, then you could be going way off in the wrong trajectory because the market need might change. The requirements might change. So I think that's where, you know, we use this at one medical a lot where it's called active daily management. It's just monitoring things and just seeing what things you need to tweak and adjust a lot of strategy and doing it well is observing and tweaking, right? They're not necessarily like drastic changes. Like if I'm not a nautical expert, but I'll just use this as an analogy. Like, you know, if you're uh, navigating a ship, you don't take these jarring turns, right? You slowly kind of course correct as you're moving. Mm -hmm. 
And that's really what a like your process should should feel like. Got it. I um, I, I liken it to on, on the business world. Like I I do a lot of projects back then in in a waterfall form, right? Like we we do a lot of planning, 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 design, and build mm. and test. And then today everything's built in agile, right? Like it's iterative in nature. But I think even if it's iterative, iterative in nature, what I like about what you're talking about is you always kind of have a, a master plan in your mind. And and you and I love watching movies. We love watching comics. Uh, mm-hmm. I want to talk about the Avengers, right? And I think mm-hmm. what is amazing, and, I, and I, I I preach this with communications, is I you should always have a master plan, right? The master narrative, the master arc. And with the Avengers, like, like they had an overall arc on how the story is going to fold out over, I don't know how many movies they actually created, like 20, some some crazy amount of movies. But all the little steps in between, they didn't have actually, they didn't have all the funding, right? It's not like they went out and funded all 20 movies. They, they mm. raised funds for each one. But the architect behind the scenes like had a, an idea on what this narrative was going to look like and how these pieces fit together. And as they were releasing one movie at a time, like there were connection points, uh, some going back several movies, some going back forward into the future, little hidden Easter eggs here and there. But I think what's amazing is to the audience, like all this should just magically happen, right? It, mm. It's just magic. But the reality is there's a lot of engineering, a lot of thought that goes into kind of designing and architecting this arc. And um, I am a complete believer that, you know, if you don't really have that master arc in plan in mind, then you're going to produce um, Justice League, right? Like it's just going to be a mishmash of stuff as yeah. opposed to something that just cohesively flows together. Well, I think I think that's the thing, right? The, Marvel Studios was the ultimate startup because I think when did Iron Man come out? Two thousand eight. Oh my gosh, yes. And there was not this grand like MCU. Like it was a one-off movie. This was before the Disney acquisition. They added that Nick Fury scene at the end. Spoilers. Like you should. I should not. You should have seen it by now. <laughs> you know, it's been like twelve years. Yeah, but. Like they were experimenting, right? They were scrappy about things. You look at the first Iron Man movie is completely different from the themes that they continue to develop. And it was through experimentation and development that they were able to create this framework to then develop the roadmap. And they constantly adjusted the roadmap because when they had the opportunity, was it Captain America Civil War? When they got the the rights to Spider-Man, right? Mm-hmm. They, they didn't, they, they made adjustments, right? They didn't stay the course in what they're looking to do. They're like, let's figure out how to incorporate Spider-Man into this because this is now like a new capability or like a new offering that they had that they, they didn't even know existed. So I think that's like the great way of approaching road mapping, right? So you, you plan and, and continue to replan, but you need to have that, that clear arc and that clear like intention. And then you kind of adjust based on like how things play out. And and so in the world we're living today, COVID is a good example, right? No one planned Mm -hmm. that a global pandemic was going to hit in 2020. And Mm -hmm. so we were all on a certain path. We all had our our arc in place. We had all goals and strategic plans in place. And all of a sudden this little tiny invisible virus kind of throws a complete wrench and up. It lifts the entire world around. And, Yet, so there are, you know, there are many people out there that are floundering right now and, and, mm. and people are struggling, but there's also just a lot of innovation happening right now. And I think what I love is, I think Webflow is part of that and a lot of other platforms out there are enabling creators like you and myself to be able to create things. This podcast, like the, the fact that I can create a podcast 
and do it virtually and remotely and publish it and, and, and get it up on the internet um, is just a, a miracle. I think it's incredibly, incredibly awesome. But it wasn't part of my initial plan. And, and I think as, as these opportunities came across, there was an opportunity to kind of jump across and then use this platform to build something for me to build this business. It wasn't part of my plans to do a podcast initially, but now that I have this equipment, I'm sitting at home, it's a chance to kind of jump on it. And so I encourage all of our listeners to um, don't be limited by what tool sets you know in the past, but be able to get up there, jump and grab whatever new stuff that's going to be coming and all the new stuff that we don't even know that's yet to come. Yeah, I think that's something I've been talking a lot to people and, and, you know, I've been spending a lot of time at like advising people and mentoring people and, you know, and being mentored myself. And I think the thing that I think we have to recognize is things are never going to be the same. And I think there's a sense of people hoping things will go back to normal or go back to the way it was. And, you know, to be candid, it's like, that's, that's not how life works, right? Life is always, it's always on play. You can't really pause. And that doesn't mean you have to like grind it out or can't take a pause in your life. It's important to do that. But I think what's important to recognize is even if things do go back to what we perceive as normal, it's a brand new timeline, right? And it's just continuing forward. And I think that's the important thing. I think, you know, in addition to resilience, I think adaptability is the important thing right now. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm trying to have that mindset of like, well, I want things to kind of go back to what I'm used to. I don't know when that's going to happen, yep. but I'm going to find ways to create, innovate, build community and do that. And it's not easy, right? It's, but it is something I think in order I think for you, it's similar to me where having that sort of creative output and that impact is, is crucial for us in our day to day. So we're trying to find, we're trying to bootstrap that new way of, of doing things. And that, that is part of this transition message that I'm sharing with everyone is, you know, like the, the, the old normal, the way things used to be, like it, just, it doesn't exist because innovation, things are always changing rapidly and faster and faster, more than ever before. When you and I were, uh, younger and growing up, um, the, the the pace of change was slow, and so now that we're in this new world, like this change is happening so quickly, and so if you kind of hold on, and, and I think back then you can specialize in one tool set and be good for forever, but today, mm -hmm. like it, like for example, even Webflow, like even if I were to dedicate a hundred percent of my entire career and everything into mastering this one tool, another one's going to pop out, something's going to completely change, or some game changer is going to pop out there, and so you are going to be stuck mm -hmm. there, and 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 you're going to be just at a loss, like if you put all your eggs into one basket. So in this whole new world, the message is, I love what you said, is adaptability, like just constantly being adapting. And and I, I love using this hashtag, but it's like hashtag learn to learn, right? Learn how to learn new mm -hmm. stuff all the time. Well, David, yeah. hey, I uh, think, uh, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, yeah. And I think that's the thing that's super important is that like, you know, as we, especially working in tech where everything's so dynamic is you got to focus on figuring out how to learn the next thing. So I love that learn to learn mm -hmm. mentality because that's what I tell 
anyone kind of getting into tech is the only thing I can tell you is the technology and the tools you use is going to change. And what you want to do is focus on problem solving. How do you collaborate with people, right? Like those are the things that are going to make you successful in tech is like, how do you work together with people to solve a problem? It just happens to be technology tools that are kind of like the means to the end. Very, very wide, wise words of wisdom from my brother here. Uh, David, thank you for joining me on my podcast today. I'm really excited to have you join and kind of share some of your thoughts. I love uh, reminiscing about some of the past. For those that want to discover you a little bit more, how can they find you? Best on my website, davidhong.com or on Twitter. It's just my full name, David Hong. Awesome. And definitely engage there. You will have a big following on Twitter and let's make it even bigger. All right. Thank you so much. Good catching up. All right. I hope you enjoyed that. I had fun just talking to my brother. One fun fact, if you didn't know, I encouraged my brother to get a Rodecaster Pro, uh, just like I did. And just before we recorded this episode, we did a little technical test. We set up the mics, make sure we had good quality audio. And I hope um, the quality came through. I hope um, increasing the production value on both of our sides uh, makes a difference. And really, I just enjoy catching up with my own brother. We don't get a chance to stay in touch as much. Uh, life is always busy. And he's always traveling. And in fact, uh, at one point in my life, I remember the only way I actually saw him was when I went to France to visit the country. Like we ended up meeting up. And uh, I was like, oh my gosh, I have to travel halfway around the world to actually see you. Because otherwise, uh, when we're local and we're close by, we just never get a chance to see each other. And so I was really excited to see him. And hey, if you enjoyed this episode, please definitely subscribe in whatever application you have. Share it with a friend. Give me a review and like, and it definitely helps a lot. I appreciate you.